Heavenly Father, thank you for today. As Elder Skibbenis mentioned earlier, in, in thinking about those we read about in the Bible and everything that they went through and how they didn't have the Bible, thank you that we have the Bible. Thank you that we can search the scriptures for answers. We dig. We can, we can grow deeper in our faith simply from just reading and studying your word. We thank you that your word is not just a book. It's not just words on pages. It's not a, an account of history. While, while it is an account of history, it is living and active. It is the power of God that as we read, your Holy Spirit churns in our hearts and reveals different things to us in your word. It makes changes to our lives and reveals different areas of sin that we're harboring to get right with you and, and renews that joy and that peace in our souls. We thank you that your word does this. Not only that, but it is the sword of the spirit. It is our weapon against the enemy and the powers of darkness that wage war against us, our marriages, our families, and our souls. Lord, I pray that we would wield it like a weapon to overcome and have victory in Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. American sports history is filled with plays at the very last moments of a game which completely change the end score of that game and they go down in sports history record books. For instance, in February 2015 during Super Bowl 49, the Seattle Seahawks appeared in a repeat Super Bowl following their victory the season before, this time in 2015, against the surprise, surprise, New England Patriots, right? Russell Wilson and the Seahawks led by 10 in the third quarter. Household name Tom Brady and the Patriots rallied to take the game 28, to take the lead 28 to 24 with just about two minutes left in the game. It was the perfect test for a two minute drill for the Seahawks. Seattle marched down the field and made it all the way to New England's one yard line with only a few seconds left. Anyone who has ever watched professional football before knows that 99% of the time, you're going to see a run in that instance, right? Just a giant guy punched through the lines. And you're yelling at the TV, punch it in! Just punch it in! You're going to see a run. However, Wilson chose to throw and ended up getting intercepted by New England's undrafted rookie cornerback, Malcolm Butler, giving New England yet another Super Bowl win. The 1982 college football season featured an intense game between the University of California's Golden Bears and the Stanford Cardinals. Stanford had managed to attain the lead with a field goal with four seconds left in the game. 99% of the time, again, that's the game. That's it. That's sealed. There's no coming back from that. However, when Stanford made an onside kick, the Golden Bears collected it and managed to throw five lateral passes all the way down the field to score a touchdown and win the game with no time left on the clock. From that point on, the end of that game was forever immortalized simply as the play. 
In fact, the play was so shocking that Stanford's marching band was so sure that their victory had been sealed and had already come out onto the field to initiate the celebration while the Golden Bears were still in the middle of their stunning comeback and ran right past them on their way to victory. And in 1989, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls faced a much stronger foe, if you can believe it, in the Cleveland Cavaliers before LeBron, uh, LeBron James for the first round of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. In the best of five series, the two teams were tied at two games apiece. This game would decide it. This game would de determine who would advance to the next series of the finals. The Cavaliers led the game by one point with only three seconds left in the game. Again, 99% of the time, that's the game. Three seconds left, nothing can happen in three seconds. Except if the one we're talking about is Michael Jordan. <laughs> with three seconds left in the game, Jordan received an inbounds pass and took a jump shot at the buzzer. The ball went in. Chicago advanced, and that shot went down in history known simply as the shot. You can tell a lot of creativity went into the names for these unforgettable, game-changing plays. Dealing with our verses this morning, the world had existed the same way for thousands of years. People were born, grew up, got married, had kids, those had kids, those kids had kids, and so on and so forth. People grew crops raised livestock, and retrieved water from wells. Empires were built and fell. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, people created their own deities and ways to appease those deities. And even the people from the bloodline of Seth, honed in by Abraham's bloodline, who God developed into a nation of faith in him, had a way of worshiping him through sacrifices for about 1,500 years. No one ever thought anything would change. Everything would just continue the way it had been and, and end the way it had been for thousands of years. Then, all of a sudden, a completely game-changing moment happened that entirely changed the world in every way. Nothing was ever the same after that game-changing moment. And what was that? God himself entered the world. The Apostle John describes and explains what happened that turned the world completely upside down. If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John. John chapter 1. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. I'm sure you brought a smartphone with you. Look it up on your favorite Bible app. John chapter 1. I want all of us to see this together. John chapter 1, verse 14. We read this for our scripture reading a few minutes ago. And we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Firstly, it's all well and good for the Apostle John to describe this person as the word, the embodiment of the word of God who created the universe and everything in it, right down to the human soul, who holds everything together. It's one thing for John to describe this person as the light, as he goes on to say. The, the embodiment of the wisdom of God and the presence of God. That's all well and good because that's what the Jewish people had been worshiping God as for 1,500 years. 
There's nothing different about that. But the game-changing fact that John is describing here is that that person did not stay in heaven. He didn't just create the universe and then like a clockmaker, wind the clock and then leave everything be like deists believe. The game-changing fact is that that person who is the word, who is the light, and all that that title represents and God, as John has already mentioned in the very first verse, this person broke into human time, broke into human understanding, and became a human being. And before we get into this profound description of who Jesus really is, let's just skip ahead to verse 15 real quick. Verse 15, John, John the Baptist, testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Spoiler alert. See, all this time, the Apostle John has not named any names. As he's gone through John chapter 1, he has not named any names. He's just been describing this person. He has not named any names as to who this eternal person is, as to who he's describing. We know it's Jesus because we know who the Apostle John then focuses the rest of this book on. But to anyone who is reading this book for the very first time or hearing it read for the very first time, you would have no clue who John was talking about except that he's obviously talking about some kind of deity. But now, most people in the, in the Jewish world anyway, when, at the time John's writing this book, knew about John the Baptist. Like I mentioned about a month ago, John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet and the transition figure into this brand new age of which we're still a part today. He preached repentance or turning from sin and turning towards God. And one day, a man named Nazareth, named Jesus, son of Joseph, came to the banks of the Jordan River where John was baptizing people. John the Baptist took one look at him and instantly recognized him as the prophesied Messiah and said these very words that are recorded for us in verse 15. So, by John, the Apostle John using John the Baptist to, to explain who he's been talking about all this time in Jesus, this was probably the fastest way for John to reveal who he's been describing in all these powerful ways so far in the, in the first chapter. The Word, the Light, and God. Remember, the Apostle John's purpose for writing this fourth gospel in the, fourth, in the first place was to get the Word out about Jesus to as many people from as many backgrounds, religions, cultures, and locations as possible. Why? Well, exactly as he says towards the end of this book so that as many people as possible could put their faith in Jesus as God and in his death and resurrection as the only basis for salvation and entrance into heaven. We know that this was the fastest way for people to connect the dots between this deity that the apostles been describing and this Jesus of Nazareth because, Jesus, because people knew about John the Baptist and no doubt this statement that he made about Jesus all around the ancient Mediterranean world at this point. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul is journeying around the area that a major Roman trade city named Ephesus, you might have heard of that before, was located. Ephesus was all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, 
hundreds of miles from Jerusalem by boat and over a thousand miles from there by foot. To give you an idea about this distance, it's only about 75 miles from here to Manhattan. And it's only about 80 miles from here to Philadelphia. To give us an idea of how far away this was, it's about from here all the way across the entire state of Pennsylvania, all the way across the entire state of Ohio to the city of Cincinnati, Ohio, if we took a boat. If we walked, it would take the distance from here all the way across to Omaha, Nebraska. That's the distance we're talking about, to match the distance from Jerusalem to Ephesus, either by boat or by walking. What's my point? When Paul was in Ephesus, as recorded in Acts chapter 19, he meets some men who had been baptized by John the Baptist only a few years before that. And within a few years, they had made their way all the way up to Ephesus, taking with them the message of John the Baptist. Fifty to sixty years after that, when the Apostle John is writing this gospel, he's writing it in dun -dun -dun, the very same city of Ephesus where there was already an established knowledge of John the Baptist. So again, the very fastest way for people in the ancient Mediterranean world, no matter who they were, to connect Jesus of Nazareth to this eternally existing deity that John has been describing all this time is by way of John the Baptist's declaration of who Jesus was. John the Baptist's revelation of Jesus as the prophesied Messiah was game-changing in and of itself. And now the Apostle John is revisiting that revelation to make his big reveal of who Jesus of Nazareth really is. Fifty to sixty years later, when the early church was facing every kind of attack from all kinds of directions. If the early church needed a refreshing bolstering at any time in human history, it was at the time of John writing this gospel. Like I mentioned at the very beginning of this series, the Roman emperor Domitian had been actively persecuting, killing, and imprisoning Christians for 20 years already by this point. Already 20 years. It was old news. The Jewish community as a whole had actively disconnected themselves from those who were recognizing Jesus as the Jewish Messiah for fear of the Romans destroying them. They had already destroyed Jerusalem. In fact, the leading Jewish authorities at the time, the Pharisees, had even included a curse in a standard prayer specifically targeting Jewish Christians. There was absolutely no support from anyone for the church in that world. So the best way the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John to strengthen our brothers and sisters 1900 years ago was to remind them of who the Jesus they worshipped really was. Jesus was the game changer for the entire world. Let's go back to verse 14. John describes this as the Word became flesh. Jesus was God, the creator of the entire universe, and the creator of the human soul, who didn't just stay in heaven, watching humanity destroy itself, sipping a Coke and muttering, Tough! You made your bed, now you have to sleep in it. That was how every other deity that humankind had made up behaved. 
These deities kept themselves separated from disgusting humanity and who that disgusting humanity had to appease. In fact, according to one biblical scholar, Jesus was so game-changing because neither the Greek philosophers nor the Jewish rabbis could even conceive of what he had done. This was completely unprecedented and inconceivable in this world. The Greek and Roman deities were entirely separate from humanity, and the Jewish teachers spent so much time promoting that no man could become a god that they never thought of the possibility of God becoming a man. That's why Jesus was so game-changing. This deity became flesh and dwelt among the humanity he created. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the term flesh in this instance does not mean sin. It means human nature, and that Jesus added human nature to his divine nature. This event is described a little bit more plainly by Paul in Philippians 2, when he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." One of the greatest challenges in theology is trying to understand Jesus adding humanity to his deity. A few theories were given in the first few hundred years of the early church, and all were condemned as heresy by a church council that took place in 451 AD, known as the Chalcedonian Council. Try to say that three times fast. Chalcedonian Council. At the same time, this council also agreed upon a statement about Jesus' deity and humanity in accordance with Scripture. The biblical and orthodox statement that is still affirmed by Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox churches today. The most basic definition of this statement is that Jesus is truly and entirely God, and at one point added to that an existence that is also truly and entirely man. More specifically, the statement declares that Jesus is, quote, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, and the distinction of two natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. You get that, right? <laughs> in other words, we see both sides of Jesus in Scripture. And we'll see both sides of Jesus in the rest of this Gospel of John. It doesn't mean that one or the other nature of these natures took breaks. In the story of Jesus calming the storm, he was both tired in his human nature and all-powerful to calm the storm in his divine nature. Both of Jesus' natures existed at the same time and in the same capacity. Likewise, what this statement also declares is that both natures act within one person. Beyond that, 
We'll never fully understand how this all worked, just that it did. Why? Because Jesus is the only one to have ever done it. That's what the, the statement that John makes in verse 14, the only begotten from the Father, means. Some cults that claim to be forms of Christianity take this word, begotten, and claim it's proof that Jesus came from the Father and that he was created by the Father. But if you look at the original Greek word at face value, it means something completely different. That word is monogonase. It's merely a word that combines two words. You see it there. Mono, which we even know, means only one, right? And genes, which is where we get the word genus or class. Remember back to seventh grade science class, and animals are divided up into what? Kingdom, phylum, genus, and species. There's a few more. <laughs> but you get the gist. So in other words, what has unfortunately been often translated into the English as begotten is literally, at face value, the only one in its class. That's what that term really means. The only one in its class. It stands alone. Nothing else can be compared to it. Jesus is the one and only, completely unique, impossible to replicate being that was both God and man sent from the Father. We're going to see that word begotten come up again in a few verses and then famously again in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. In every instance, though, it's the same word in the Greek, monogonase, and thus the same meaning, the only one in its class. We already know that Jesus embodied the same being, essence, characteristics, and nature as God the Father. Contrary to, contrary to what has become a popular understanding of Jesus' deity and humanity since the late 1800s, Philippians 2, 5 through 9 do not say that Jesus emptied himself of some of his attributes of being God. The Chalcedonian Council already determined that. If you look at the immediate context, Paul's main point was to persuade the Philippians to humble themselves, right? That's, that's the main context. Have this attitude in yourselves. That's what Paul's trying to get across. Jesus' humility, that we should also be just as humble as Jesus was. He, Paul's main point was to persuade the Philippians to humble themselves and put their Christian brothers and sisters ahead of one another, just as Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly status and glory and committed himself to even the lowliest earthly status of a human under Jewish law, an indentured servant. That's what bondservant means. What I want to focus on in Philippians 2.7 is that Jesus was born in the likeness of men. Does that phrase look familiar at all? When Jesus created the first two humans, what does he say to the other members of the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit? He says, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. That's why that should look familiar. So in a very profound way, 
What happened when Jesus was not only born, but conceived by an inexplicable way of the Holy Spirit overshadowing a teenage girl named Mary was that the same creator who created mankind in his likeness, that is to reflect his characteristics, albeit imperfectly, then made himself into the likeness of mankind, but this time to be actually all of mankind's characteristics and being all the way up to actually sinning himself. He got all the way up to that point without crossing that line. Why is this crucially important to us as fallen and sinful human beings? In order for Jesus to redeem us in every way, Jesus not only had to be fully God and therefore sinless in order to be the perfect sacrifice, but he also had to be fully human in order to identify, represent, save, and reconcile humans to perfectly holy Father God. He now exists to be the perfect high priest, the one and only mediator between God and man. He had to be both God and man to be able to do that. Not only is Jesus' death and resurrection our one and only hope of salvation from our sins and only way to get to heaven, but Jesus himself in all that he is is our one and only hope of salvation from our sins and only way to get to heaven. Those who never take Jesus' death and resurrection and Jesus himself as their one and only way of getting into heaven and who live their entire lives thinking their perceived inherent goodness will be good enough to make it, will never make it. Scripture is very clear about that. Those who have repented of our sinful ways and turned to God only do so through Jesus in every way and thus ensure our reconciliation with God through Jesus that that will gain us entrance into heaven. And so we worship Jesus for who he is in every single way. And knowing all of these things about Jesus, his deity and his humanity, deepens our worship of Jesus for who he is. John also says in verse 14 that we have seen his glory. In Philippians 2, Paul says that Jesus willingly gave up his heavenly status and glory to take on human nature. Not to then become a human king, but to then to become the most humble kind of humanity. But John, in verse 14, says... We have seen his glory. John, as an eyewitness, caught glimpses of that heavenly, heavenly glory in Jesus through his miracles, his teaching, how he lived his earthly life, his authority, his death, and most importantly, his resurrection and glorified resurrected body. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, Jesus' glorified resurrected body then ascended back to heaven where he continues to exist in both God and human form. This happened so that, as Paul says to the Corinthians, he could serve as the first fruits or the prototype of what our glorified resurrected bodies will be like someday. There will be a day 
when Jesus will partially return for all those who have repented of their sin and put their faith in him, his death and resurrection for their salvation and redemption. And he'll call them up to himself. And like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be changed in an instant. And both those who had died by that point and those who are alive by that point will both be given glorified bodies. Fit for eternity. I can't wait for that day. Can you? Oh, man. But again, it all starts with Jesus. And it all starts with him being both fully God and fully man. Our end, so to speak, is very similar to our beginning. Adam and Eve had bodies that were created to be free from disease, broken bones, physical pain, and to live forever. Their desire and action to throw all of that away and rather to try to be like God themselves cost them all of that, right along with being able to live forever. Death entered the world that day. Jesus' original purpose for humanity to do, to do, was to dwell with him forever, to enjoy his eternal presence and blessing. But even though humanity turned their backs on God, God never turned his back on humanity. Sometime later, God manifests his presence in the form of a pillar of smoke and fire, which led the Israelites around the wilderness and hovered over the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. God's presence among his people existed in that way, whether or not it was visible in the temple, as recorded in 2 Chronicles, for hundreds of years, until the prophet Ezekiel witnesses a vision in which the glory of God leaves the temple. Israel's sin had grown too great, and they would soon suffer exile by the Babylonians. God's presence remains absent from among his people for hundreds of years after that, including the Babylonian exile, return to Jerusalem, and Greek occupation of Judea. In fact, as one theologian points out, the presence of God among his people is gone for about 600 years, all the way up to the time John is describing for us right here. The presence of God himself, Jesus, entered the world to once again dwell among his people. Instead of recognizing him as such, as John says in verse 11, though, they rejected him and had him nailed to a cross. However, when we put our faith for our salvation in Jesus, God's word tells us that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, also God himself, sent by Jesus and the Father, literally comes and makes a home within us, once again dwelling with us. He starts to transform everything about our lives to become the way God wants them to be and is himself the very proof of our heavenly home someday. And when we die or Jesus comes back before then, we will be reunited with him to dwell with him forever. See, God has always loved us so much that he's always wanted to live among us. And he will eventually, we will eventually be able to enjoy that fully with him forever. That's what our redemption will finally lead to. Amen? Lastly, the Apostle John describes Jesus as being full of grace and truth. 
is pointed out by one biblical scholar. This is similar language to when God reveals his glory to Moses. That glory was connected to the law. It was connected to God's covenantal love and faithfulness towards his people. Even though God's people were looking for his arrival to be full of fanfare and fireworks and driving out the oppressive Romans, in short, all-powerful glory, God's first arrival was really a callback to that covenantal love and faithfulness, God's grace and truth. This time, it would be to establish a new covenant, the new covenant between God and man, mediated by the God-man. And all of this is summed up in one verse, John 1.14. Didn't think I could take more than a half an hour on one verse, right? It, it gives us an immeasurable treasure of who Jesus really is. And what we must keep in mind this entire time as we continue to work our way through this gospel. Jesus, as the creator, became in nature like his creation in order for us to be reconciled to him. That's what true love is. Our sin broke us broke humanity, and broke the world. Jesus is the only one who will fix all of that. As the Apostle John says, John the Baptist did in saying, the one and only true God is revealed in Jesus. What are our lives being lived for? Are they only being lived to reveal ourselves to this world? Making a mark for ourselves? making a lot of money, or only focusing on ourselves and, and our families? Or are they being lived to point out to this world the one and only true God is revealed in Jesus? When people see us, do they see us? Or do they see Jesus? If you've never made Jesus the salvation from your sin and the only way for you to gain heaven, do so right now. Pray to him and tell him you know your sin separates you from him and nothing you could ever do can change that. Tell him that you know that Jesus taking your place on the cross as a substitute for you and your sin is your only hope. Tell him that you turn from that sin, you ask him for forgiveness, and you make Jesus the king over the rest of your life. That's it. There's nothing else. You don't need to do any more things after that. You don't need to earn anything after that. All you do is live your life in love for Jesus and pleasing him with the rest of your life. That's it. All we can do is to accept God's free gift of eternal salvation. We can't add anything to it. In fact, the only thing we add to it is our sin, which is the problem for everything. All we can do is accept God's free gift of eternal salvation. But what that takes is complete humility. And a lot of people aren't willing to take that step of humbling themselves before God. If you made that, this decision, perhaps years ago, but you walked away from God for a while, remember this. He has never left you. Come back to him today. Renew that commitment to living for Jesus as king and allow him to start transforming your life again. 
And if you made this decision perhaps years ago and you've remained faithful to him, let this verse and all that it entails drive you to deeper worship of who Jesus really is, the word becoming flesh. And surrender yourself each day to view everything each day with this truth of who Jesus is. His grace and his truth are our only hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two couple of verses, and really primarily this one verse of John 1.14. We thank you for everything that it reveals to us about who you are. All of it needed to happen. All of it needed to happen out of love for you to reconcile us to yourself. Thank you that that was your main objective. That was your main purpose. You came so that we could be restored to God. You came, suffered all that you suffered through. Suffered all the humiliation and mocking and torture and beating and being nailed to a cross for us. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here or watching online later that has never accepted this free gift of salvation from you, I pray that they would do so today and start seeing the Holy Spirit transforming their life in a way that they would not believe. And Lord, if there's anybody here who had made that decision a long time ago, but they've walked away a little bit, I pray that you bring them back to yourself. Remind them how much you love them, that you want to go back to transforming their life again. You want to go back to leading them beside still waters, lead them through green pastures, as Psalm 23 tells us. And we may find our foundation and hope and peace in you. And Lord, may all of us, as your children, be in awe of who you are, who you really are. And may that drive us to deeper worship of you. It with, with our everyday lives, even, not just on Sundays, not just on Wednesday nights, not just during Bible studies, but our everyday lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.